but we're in John chapter 17. We are now on the night of our Lord's betrayal. And this entire chapter will be our Lord praying to the Father. We saw in verses 1 through 5 how He prayed for Himself. He did not pray selfishly. but He prayed that He might be glorified, that He could glorify the Father. After the opening part of this prayer, Jesus goes on to pray for His disciples. We will eventually see where Jesus prays for us. This morning, let's read verses 6 through 16 of John chapter 17. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let's stop reading at verse 13. That's as far as we'll get, and I don't have the energy to read further. Last week, our focus was from the first phrase of verse 9, where Jesus says, I pray for them. And what a tremendous thought for believers to just let sink in, that Jesus prays for us. And from this thought, last week we considered several passages from Hebrews about Christ becoming and still functioning as our great high priest. Remember that Jesus is now called a minister of the sanctuary. How is He ministering? Or how is He serving? He's not serving and offering sacrifices for He's the last sacrifice that God needed. But He is serving in that He is offering up prayers for you and I. And the main emphasis last week is how Jesus knows exactly what you and I go through. He knows how we feel because He lived among us, among us for 33 and a half years in order that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest. We have such an high priest who understands the feelings of our infirmities and was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Which means He not only knows how to pray for you, He knows how to give you victory. Who better to pray for us, amen? He will help those who will be helped. Now as we continue in verse 9, we see that after Jesus says He is praying for His disciples, He then says, I pray not for the world. How are we to understand this statement by Christ? Are we to conclude that Jesus never prayed for the lost world? I do not see where the Bible teaches that before the world began, some were pre-selected for heaven and 
Some were pre-selected for hell without ever having an opportunity for salvation. There are too many verses which state the contrary. I'll give you just two, which ought to be enough. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God wants all men to be saved. Hallelujah. 2 Peter 3.9 says He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mention this because a well-noted Calvinist commentator who has many good insights is wrong here. Because he believes the reason Jesus says, I do not pray for the world, is because, quote, he did not die for them, so he prayed not for them, end quote. This can't be true biblically. Jesus died for all. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. 1 John 2, 2 says, And He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died for the whole world. He died for all because He wants all to be saved. Jesus shed His blood for all the sin of mankind, but not all will receive the free gift of His salvation offered through Christ alone in His substitutionary death upon the cross of Calvary. Therefore, when he says, I pray not for the world, it isn't because he didn't die for them. He most certainly did. Well, does this statement mean he just in general doesn't pray for them, regardless of whether or not he died for them? Well, this can't be true biblically either. Not to mention, if Jesus did not ever pray for the world, then he would be in contradiction of his own teachings. I don't think Christ would do that. Matthew 5.44, it says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good unto them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies, which is the world. Because when we were born, we were born at enmity with God. We were enemies of God because we were without Christ. And we're to pray for the world. And certainly Jesus wouldn't contradict that. And logically, why would Jesus die for the world but not pray for him? Even while on the cross, and this should remove all doubt, Jesus prayed for the lost. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So when Jesus said, I pray not for the world, it doesn't mean he never prays for the world. And instead of trying to make this say something which is not said, we should just understand it in its context and know that what Jesus is praying for these disciples, He cannot pray this for the world. Just look at verse 10. What does it say there? And I am glorified in them. Jesus cannot be glorified in the world, right? So He cannot pray this for the world, and that's all this means here. And when Jesus says, I'm glorified in them, I hope that Jesus can say that about you this morning. That in your life, you are glorifying Christ. And I don't want to re-preach this as we covered it early on in this chapter, so I won't get hung up here, but is your life glorifying God? Jesus is simply praying for those whom God has gifted to Him. And I'm not going to preach that thought over again either. But we understand that those who were given to Christ by God does not mean that they were predestinated before the world was. 
but rather we are those who have come to God for salvation through Christ alone. And as the reward of His suffering, God has given us to Christ. We are His bride. Now I do want to draw out one more thought here from verses 9 and 10 before we move on. Jesus says in verse 9 that we have been given to Christ and that we belong to God. And in verse 10, Jesus says, And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. I don't know about you, but this language is very comforting to me because I'm not perfectly sinless. I still make mistakes. I still battle this flesh. And I know I don't deserve salvation. And I know that I certainly don't deserve to retain salvation. But hallelujah this morning, I know that I belong to God. What a blessing. If you're in Christ, then you belong to God. And while I don't want to disappoint my Savior through my sinful decisions and some practices, and while I know we have not been given a license to sin, I am so thankful that when I do sin, my Heavenly Father does not disown me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. I'm secure in Christ. I am in the Father's hand. And no man can pluck me from the Father's hand because I belong to Him. Someone will suppose, I hear this quite often, you may not be able to be plucked out of His hand, but you can choose to jump out of His hand. Not according to John chapter 10. The Bible says there in verses 28 and 30, 28 through 30, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So how can you, who are just a man, pluck yourself out of the Father's hand when Jesus says no man's able to do so? You can't. God is greater than you. Hallelujah. And in Christ, we have eternal life. We shall never perish. But what about those who make a profession of faith, but now they deny the Lord altogether? Please understand, I'm not suggesting a person cannot backslide. Me personally, I can relate to the hymn writer who penned, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. But a person who says that they were in Christ, but now denies the very existence of the Savior they said they once had, they were never in Christ to begin with. So why do you say that? Let me give you three passages. There's plenty. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. In Jude, verse 19, the Bible says, These be they who separate themselves, having not the Spirit. They never had the Spirit to begin with. Hebrews 10 removes all doubt in my mind in verses 38 and 39, where the writer penned this, Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul have no pleasure in him. But 
We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. To draw back to perdition is to draw back to damnation. And we cannot do that in Christ. We are not of those who draw back unto perdition. There are those who will come in, make a profession, but they will draw back unto perdition because they never had it to begin with. Yes, we're going to falter. Yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we have lapses of faith. Yes, we backslide. But I want to tell you this morning, those who are truly in Christ will not draw back unto perdition. So what about verse 12, where Jesus says, none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. Well, I believe the verbiage there itself clears up any confusion any may have, as he is called the son of perdition. He never was a son of God. He was always a son of perdition. He was never of God. Jesus keeps the redeemed, but he cannot keep the lost because they were never his to begin with. If you're in Christ, you are secure this morning. I wish I was feeling better because I'd be preaching this. Amen. You are secure. 1 Peter 1.5 says, We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Thank God I'm kept by His power. I've been given to Christ for safekeeping. The Bible says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And you can think of that as a canning preserve kind of thing. And that seal cannot be opened until we get back to the one who gave the earnest of our redemption. Amen. I've been given to Christ, and all of His are God's, and all of God's are His, and nothing can jeopardize my eternal destination. Now, I can be a knucklehead while I live upon this earth. I can make stupid decisions apart from God's Word. But I know this, I've been bought with a price. And I know His blood has washed away my sins. Let's move on to verse 11. It says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Keep in mind that much of Jesus' prayer here is said for the benefit of His disciples who are listening in. He says in verse 13, And these things I speak in the world. He's, he's praying out loud for their benefit. And Jesus is once again letting them know of His soon departure. He was not long for this world, so He says as if it has already happened, now am I no more in the world. And part of the reason for saying that is He would not be able to be with them any longer. Once they cross over the brook Kidron and enter the Garden of Gethsemane, after one more chance, uh, one more moment of prayer, Jesus will be... um, Jesus will be handed over to the hands of sinners. My mind is not functioning. (laughs) Amen. Let me just stick to my notes then. Amen. Might be easier. So to try to help these men through the loss of the physical presence of Christ, Jesus says, I come to thee. Saying this to his disciples, I'm coming to God. Jesus wants them to know that he has not been snuffed out. That this was not an accident. That his death was planned. 
He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus' departure was foreknown and it was planned out and Jesus would once again go to the Father. And this is another reassurance for them that Jesus was sent by God because to God He must return. And while Jesus would leave this world physically, He wants them to know the Holy Father has it all under control. So He prays for them to be kept through the power of God's name. He's saying, hey guys, I'm going to be taken out of here, but don't worry because God is in complete control and I have placed you in His safe keeping. He's letting them know that while His bodily presence would no longer be with them, they would be in the Father's watch care. Matthew Henry wrote, quote, Those cannot but be saved whom the Almighty God keeps. And He cannot but keep those whom the Son of His love commits to Him. End quote. And because Christ would have to be forsaken by His Father, that's upcoming. Jesus knows this, and while He's on the cross, He will become sin for us, and God will have to forsake His Son. Knowing that, He commits the care of His disciples to His heavenly Father because Christ is going to be rejected by God. His followers, what this means is, Jesus is making sure that His, father, his followers were never without heavenly watch care. This is important in our day. This was meant to comfort them. And it's meant to comfort us. Listen, don't let COVID-19 scare you to death. Don't let it trouble you. Why? You are in the Father's watch care. Don't be stupid. But don't fear. Nothing happens to God's children without Him allowing it. Even all that happened to Job, God had to put a boundary upon Satan. During the first round of trials, God told Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So God says, Satan, you can, you can destroy all that he has, but don't touch him. And boy, Satan sure did, didn't he? Well, that didn't work, so Satan goes back and says, I want to put my hand upon him. And God said, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. There was a boundary on how far Satan could go. He couldn't kill him. And I'm simply saying this morning, I want you to trust God. That which happens to you is within God's complete control. We don't have to fear. We don't have to live in fear over a virus. I find it interesting how some will take such great measures to avoid contracting a virus, but they'll continue to smoke like the chimney, damaging their lungs. I'm not against you if you smoke. I'm just making a point. It's kind of like the one that will do everything not to get sick from a virus, but will continue drinking until they irreversibly damage their liver. Or like the one who will go into hiding because... They're terrified of a virus, but they'll continue to eat so unhealthy that they're jeopardizing their life. Is it just me? Why do we treat the virus the way we do? When it's a fact that these other areas are far more deadly. 
and people continue to do them. We act like we're so concerned about our health, but are we really? You realize you're more likely to die from an accident or injury than you are from COVID-19? But we're all still doing things that could cause accident or injury. We're still driving. The truth is many have died from COVID because they had developed bad habits, compromised their immune system already. In fact, when Italy was getting hit early on, their health officials concluded that because Italy had such a large population of heavy smokers, that was the reason why they were seeing such a high death rate, because they had already compromised their lung function. But listen, that aside, we have greater issues than the virus. Did you know that teen suicides and drug overdoses are killing more teens than COVID-19? Where's the outcry? Our fear should not be a virus, but we should fear God. And I just want you to be assured this morning that God is watching over you. Listen, we don't have to fear the passing of a loved one either. That's what's happening here. These disciples are about to lose Jesus whom they loved dearly. But Jesus wanted them to be comforted, to be armed with the assurance that God was in control of His departure. And that likewise, God was in control of them and their destiny. They were going to be kept by the power of God's name. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. And from the assurance of this precious truth that God was keeping them, at the end of verse 13, they were to have Christ's joy fulfilled in themselves. It's a joy to know that my Father has planned it all. Now, I can see that now that I can look back some years and see how God has orchestrated our family. But it's a joy to know God has it all planned. It, listen, it's not always going to be pleasant. But you can always have joy. Christ had joy even though He was going to the cross. The Bible says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. The cross was literally torture. But Christ could be joyful in going to the cross, knowing His Father was in control at all times, and that he was in the Father's will. This is why the martyrs we read of could joyfully sing when they were being burned at the stake. They counted themselves worthy to suffer the persecutions of Christ. And I don't have time this morning to get into it, but never confuse the idea of happiness and joy. I may not be happy I contracted an illness, but I can still have joy. We've already seen during this study that John writes how Jesus wants our joy to be full. And would you notice that the joy we need is not the joy that we possess. We cannot manufacture this joy. We cannot get it from the world. But Christ calls it my joy at the end of verse 13. And the joy we need can only come through knowing Christ. Once we have this joy... How is it that we can maintain this joy? By the way, the joy of the Lord is supposed to be our strength. So how do we maintain joy in the Lord? Well, it comes through unity. At the end of verse 11, Jesus prays that they may be one as we are one. Unity with God comes through a spirit-filled life. 
And one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. When there is disunity, there is a lack of joy. We see this in our own homes. When a child is not obedient, mine have never done that yet, but when a child is not obedient to their parents, there is no unity in the home. And sure enough, there's a loss of joy as a result, and usually that loss of joy is upon both the parents and the children. When there is strife and division within a marriage, then there's a lack of joy because the two are no longer unified. You're no longer behaving as one flesh. You are not one as God and Christ are one. And this is manifested corporately within our church as well. When there are divisions internally, there's a lack of joy because we're not unified. And there's always something that's cropping up. But when we are of the same mind... As God and Christ are, then there is a sweet spirit and joy in the Lord. Philippians 2, 1 and 2 says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. You see, being many members in here today, we are one body. And when we decide that we as Liberty Baptist Tabernacle are going to be unified as one body, we can be joyful Christians no matter what takes place. We can still rejoice this morning. Amen. I can't move my head fast because I get dizzy. Ephesians 4, 3 and 6 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? There's one body, one Spirit. As you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and is in you all. I know this was just disjointed, but in closing, I want to just ask, are you one with God? Not equal in position, we cannot have that. We can be joint heirs with Christ, but we can't sit at the Father's right hand. That belongs to Christ. But are you in His will? Are you obeying His word? Are you aligned with God? Do you hear what I'm saying? Are you aligned with God this morning? If not, this could be the main reason why you are not experiencing real joy in your life. And listen, maybe part of the problem is you keep having doubts about your eternal security. But if you have sincerely asked the Lord to save you because you're a sinner, then take God at His word And know that you are now His and nothing can ever change this. Listen, if you can't get past step one, you're never going to be of any value. I can tell you that the world out there needs a demonstration of real joy during these times. Would you get this point as we close? The world needs to see joyful Christians. Did you know that in 2018 there were at least 1.4 million suicide attempts? 48,000 of those took their own lives. In 2019, nearly 71,000 people died from drug overdose. That's Rapid City. People are looking for joy. They're looking for a remedy. We have the answer. The answer is Christ. At least we're supposed to be rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So... 
may we leave out of here determined to do better at sharing Christ with the lost world. And listen, don't neglect to speak up to that one at work that all of a sudden is withdrawn. There are people out there on a ledge and they're looking for an answer. And we have it. But so many times we don't listen to the Holy Spirit and we don't listen to that unction and we don't go talk to them. Get your relationship right with the Lord and then you'll be able to help others. Let's pray.